Well, good afternoon. <clears throat> On about 29th of May 1660, to borrow a trope from Virginia Woolf, human nature changed. Uh, the coronation of uh, Charles II and the Restoration produced a remarkable change of language, not least in the formation of the Royal Society, that produced uh, several fiats, including the exclusion or the re reduction, certainly the removal, to some extent, of tropes allegories, metaphors, analogies from scientific papers. You would have thought at that point that with the arrival of a proto-restoration, later Augustan poetry, that these two events were completely and intimately bound. And to some extent that's true. Uh, we have the age of Dryden, but we also later had the age of Rochester and Edward Taylor, the poets <coughs> who basically were actually only teenagers at the time of the restoration and themselves were writing in a metaphysical style for way into that restoration period. The troubled interface between metaphysical poetry, where Dunn and others yoked ideas with violence together, and using all forms of scientific exploration and geological and other metaphysical thrills that came, uh, had been therefore traduced after the Civil War to uh, the, in a sense, the 60 years after this event, Pope's nature and nature's law lay hid in night, then God said, let Newton be, and all was light, would suggest that perhaps poetry had surrendered itself, its metaphors, and much of its efficacy to science. This wasn't entirely true. Uh, Miltonic verse, blank verse in itself, with its involutions and its private conscience, perhaps was too redolent of a Puritan mind, and we are, in a sense, still recovering from that re uh, revolution whereby the French Alexandrian Augustan couplet came in, which in a sense, by its very clarity and its attempts to engage with the new era, of which the Royal Society was so central a part, in itself became more inadequate to express science through poetry. We are still perhaps, with Eliot's suggestions of the dissociation of sensibilities thereafter, living in the fallout from that period. On the other hand, it was partly inevitable. You cannot use that many tropes with science, uh, but it's back. And with me today, Mary Petruzzi and Michael and Michael Bacalab like this and Richard, Richard Todd, yeah. who will all be discussing the various ways and indeed their own papers. And Mario is going to go first because he's feeling rather ill, and if he has to rush out, I will take over his paper. <laughs> I have actually been learning it on the train. And Michael Blackburn. If you'd like to go next, yes. after that, <coughs> Richard, after you, that'd be lovely. And I'll come back with a few comments. But uh, we'll start with Mario, who will be addressing <coughs> this very point, and dissociation of sensibility, and indeed a trope which I think I'll let Mario introduce, because it's a rather good one towards the end of his essay. Thank you. Mario Petruzzi. Thank you. Well, I'll read from my notes, if you don't mind. It's uh, more secure. Um, I don't feel there's any point revisiting the various wars that rage between science and the humanities, uh, such as the Levis Snow Two Cultures debacle, or Alan's so-called social text hoax. Thankfully, the need to explain those affronts between supposedly antagonistic camps is now largely historical. For us, if pollution and radioactive fallout recognise no human borders, nor does creativity and its insistence seeping between the disciplines, a rare case of desirable contamination. To investigate the interdisciplinary, then, as Simon said, is to explore the ultimately 
borderless regimes of mind, self, and society. And it's there that the arts and the sciences constitute two interwoven strands of DNA. So I'll be focusing on the social sciences, economics, politics, psychology, linguistics. And I'll lead with my ace. And that's that by heightening our awareness of the detailed texture of perception, by making the habitual and familiar unfamiliar, poetry dents those self-replicating units of culture many of us fail to see. In the poem Gorgo and Beau, for example, Edwin Morgan permits dialogue with the cancer cell, giving voice to the ultimate outsider. And yet, many of our isms have gone underground, evolving new or more subtle forms. Some prejudices and addictions don't even carry an ism-like tag. Is there a common term for the ubiquitous front room presence of TVs? Or the assumption, now wounded perhaps, that economic growth per se is always a good thing? Poetry as ace of clubs is still socially desirable. Am I saying then that poetry is just a club to wake us up with no other utility value? Well, no. Many individuals and institutions turn to poetry in moments of crisis or intensity, as our experience of weddings and funerals attests. So poetry offers an art form suitable for widespread public participation, catharsis, and social reflection. One that helps to signpost and consolidate crucial political shifts. As Obama and Stalin respectively demonstrated, poetry can be wielded either to signal the liberation of the proletariat or to quell it. But this inherited public role for poetry, cemented via the laureateship here in Britain, is problematic. State art is rarely great art, and public catharsis often draws the banal to the surface. That said, I acknowledge poetry's role throughout the years in therapy, healing, and psychological well-being, and today's practitioners are far from absent in prisons, hospitals, and psychiatric wards, working with young offenders and urban regeneration. Poetry's current emphasis on the confessional, too, could provide a database on the zeitgeist, a window on artistic collective psychology, though it's arguable how transparent or representative that would be. Then there are poetry's many contributions to education and social values, to spirituality and metaphysics, though one must include there the negatives as well as the positives. What these different functions suggest to me is that society contains overlapping poetries, enacted by various individuals and interest groups. Just as science is no monolithic entity, so poetry is mistakenly banded about as a singular term. And here in its very plurality lies one of poetry's greatest uncertainties. To some, it's thriving, vibrant, evolutionary. To others, it's increasingly centralised, commercialised, a ghost of its former table-turning self. My own jury is out on that. But there are those I speak to who conclude that poetry's most incisive and challenging forms have become the most marginalised, that the gains of modernism and the avant-garde have been largely squandered or abandoned, that the subversive qualities of literature have been silenced, the poets' incisors collectively pulled. So are our writers increasingly selling rather than telling stories? 
If so, poetry offers the culture a sideline in entertainment, social utility and catharsis, but very little by way of dissent. After all, poetry is still far from central in our culture, in spite of National Poetry Day. Assuming that poetry has any cultural potency left, where might it be applied? I've already touched upon its role in public memorial, but to remember, as poetry does, that is to piece back together in the imagination, is so much more than simply not forgetting. Language can reform memory and thought, as well as preserve them. It can shift and realign the worldview, sometimes quite deeply. But what is this universe the porch of, asks the poet John Ashbury. And Rumi asks us to consider someone who walks with a half loaf of bread to a hovel that's snug as a nest about him, who desires nothing more, who is not himself yearned for by anyone else. He is a letter to the world. Open it. It tells you. Live. Of course the sciences too renew our worldview, providing streams of knowledge we assimilate. And that's another area in which poetries have a valuable role to play. Metaphor can swing both ways, not only generating defamiliarization, but also helping to make the unfamiliar familiar. Whenever humanity encounters or creates phenomena for which it has no precedent, or for that matter any genetic instinct, poetry is often quick to create fresh language. Whether it's the metaphysical poets deploying the novelties of science, as they did, or today Daljit Nagra voicing a new strand of immigrant experience, or Michael Simmons Roberts probing the human genome project. Language engendering issues for me have included the environment and radioactivity, Three Mile Island, Windscale, Chernobyl. They've compelled me to struggle with words and forms that convey meanings beyond mere resignation or memorial. This is an excerpt from Heavy Water, a poem for Chernobyl. So, what will it be? Picture it on that reel inside your head. Do you see purple-red bluffs of flame? What do you hide there? Incandescence pushing unstoppably through troposphere. Bodies making causeways for survivors. Who slipped those pixels in? But memorials aren't only to do with the past. Art can enliven issues by helping us to image, as well as imagine, the future consequences of current inaction. In a sense, society's possible trajectories can be memorialised too, as they frequently are in futuristic, usually apocalyptic films. Indeed, some futures are now so familiar from films that they've begun to condition and demobilise the present. Any kind of memorial, whether past or future, is political. But for me, poetry's radicalism, its language, are generally at their best and most potent when neither rhetorical nor party political. Here, where politics becomes that marrow of individual and social self-awareness, poetry reminds us that observation is more than measurement, valuation more than pricing, understanding greater than a statistic or the detection of a trend, response more complex and multilayered than a policy. It can lead the individual into a realisation of the unique, active and self-responsible self. As Rilke asks, 
What is your most pressing injunction if not for transformation? Poetry can thus reach where measurement, categorization, and linear logic can't. It admits a mystery and the unknowable. My perception of death was altered forever when I first read Emily Dickinson's I Died for Beauty, a transformation spurred as much by the irresistible rhyme and rhythm of that piece as anything else. I'm reminded too of Ezra Pound's notion of the ideogram, a group of images and ideas juxtaposed to achieve a higher intent whereby a greater penetration of meaning can be achieved. This penetration of poetry, its ability to drive its idea deeply home, may be essential to us. In an age of signs, we remain slow to see or act. Perhaps then, what I'm saying is that poetry can act as litmus to the social sciences. We know, for instance, that a sight of natural beauty or a local species of inedible fish resists that tendency in economics to reduce all objects to a single variable, currency. Environmental impact assessments have long struggled to deal with such terms, termed <coughs> intangibles. See how the very word intangible implies that something difficult to price is somehow unreal, impossible even to touch. Poetry exploring the eternal or symbolic values of a landscape or of a fish can redress all of that. Then there's the fundamental incommensurability of reality to contend with. In McNeese's poem Snow, world is crazier and more of it than we think, incorrigibly plural. Yes, you can price roses and tangerines, but you can't pretend they're the same thing just because you have a vehicle and methodology of exchange. From what I can make out, the current practice of social science with its theorists and empiricists, positivists and anti-positivists, its hardliners, hermeneuticists and eclecticists, has itself become rather a broad church, and one that may be able to accommodate the symbols, metaphors, and immeasurables of poetry. This wryness in art is vital. You can never quite paraphrase or pin down what it's saying. When Yeats acidly observes those who fumble in a greasy till and add the halfpence to the pence and prayer to shivering prayer, his lines still leave room in what might seem a fairly straightforward condemnation of pitiness. For a glint of pity, they manage to suggest kinship between the cynicisms and fears of bored economics and those of religion. In terms of illumination, then, poetry offers complex natural light rather than uniform fluorescence. In tell us, telling us about human and inanimate matters, it presents the broad and shifting shade of an oak rather than the scalpel of a sundial. After Copenhagen, with the ecological crisis still an urgency, we must learn to accommodate the anti-Cartesian, where much great poetry already is. We need more than ever a branch of economics that deals with metaphor. Can I coin the phrase? Metaphorical economics. I believe it's the inability of economics to cope with metaphorical values that leads to most of its problems. And yet when it comes to education and the popularization of ideas, most social sciences, economics and politics included, do realize keenly the value and significance of metaphor, financial crash, economic meltdown, landslide victory, 
Speaking of meltdowns and crashes, significant areas of social activity now are founded on the axioms of free market dynamics and neoclassical economics. We are the supposed agents and protagonists of those axioms. We're a little like those ideal or implied readers sometimes assumed to exist in literature. Poetry, along with the rest of art, carries the potential to examine those assumptions from unexpected angles, to go way beyond standard analysis, to expose values so long buried that it becomes an agent of what I call normative archaeology, that is, poetry unearthing the origins and underlying characteristics of pivotal aspects of the human condition, making intensely real and personal its insights regarding the foundations of constructs such as normalcy, ethics, identity, time. You need look no further than Shakespeare or Dante, for examples, or Shelley's Ozymandias. True, poetry's ability to walk with uncertainties, something, by the way, Keats so, felt so positively about, he called it negative capability, is shared by science, which, which constantly handles partial or dubious data. But society misreads science as establishing a series of absolutes, tempting policymakers and investors to wait for the science to consolidate a situation before they commit. Poetry could be crucial in such issues as climate change precisely because it helps us to see the need to immerse ourselves in important matters clouded by complexity, difficulty and risk. With our fossil fuel civilization now middle-aged junkie chasing the next fix, the question of what the hell to do next has never been so stark. Do our citizens, our artists, scientists, politicians, journalists, bankers, do they really feel the quicksand? Who is lifting eyes to horizons, encouraging us to work responsibly, imaginatively, communally, towards that sea change in us that might preempt the sea rise? And how on earth do we overhaul those institutions and systemic behaviours we seem unable to shake? By embracing ambiguity and incertitude, by allowing plurality, poetry brings a lot to that table. Indeed, great poetry can reboot consciousness. What's more, neither Mao nor the young Stalin was brought to poetry by the kinds of tolerance empathy or plurality of perspective, I suggest. Poetry at its worst is simply coarse and reductive in its own way. What McNeese called a thing with one face, a thing. As we saw, in fact, with much of pro-war Georgian verse. But at its best, poetry transcends those political and psychological reductionisms. And it celebrates the world, including the world of possibility, as it is. Embedded in the processes of poetry, even in its darkest elegy, is a celebration of language, one of the major means by which we know ourselves. If a physicist is the atom's way of thinking about atoms, then the poet must be language's way of thinking about words. So let me wind up. The word verse has its origins in the turn of the plough the drawing of furrows. And the making of conversation, as with verse, can be hard work. But the reward for enduring any initial discomfort is usually fecundity. These are tough times for technology and the sciences, 
in spite of our dependence on them. Given all the eco-doom scenarios, that old contention by the cubist Georges Brach that our troubles while science reassures has for many been turned on its head. So any exchange between literature and science can't be merely utilitarian, pragmatic or economic. It must have a personality. It needs to discover elements of sacredness and of intimacy. I am the enemy you killed, my friend, says the trench poet Wilfred Owen. Dialogue needs imagination. Killing feeds on a lack of it. The etymology of the word conversation also suggests an entering into communion with, an enjoying of intercourse. When it comes to intellectual intercourse, whether it's with politics, economics, or any aspect of the social sciences, if our world is to go on, we cannot play it entirely safe. There must be, to stretch my point, a joyous but respectful exchange of fluids. There must be babies. Thank you. Thank you very much.
what interests me though is this aspect uh, to do with social sciences I suppose which is the in broader terms say philosophy, economics um, and um, philosophy as well and the kind of relationship there may be between poets and people who practice these, uh, these other disciplines. And I think a, a lot of my views probably do chime with um, both uh, Marius and, and Rich's as well, which is, for me, it's the primacy of the individual which is important. And the individual is the primary ground because they are human. So in some ways, I'm probably just very old-fashioned in, in promoting the idea of the humanities. The arts are important because they are basically about what it is like to be human. Okay. And that's really what uh, concerns me, and I'll, I'll come back to another point of that later on. So what always bothers me, particularly with uh, being involved in, in, to a certain extent, with teaching with education, is the way that... Theories developed in philosophy and the, and the other social sciences are then used uh, upon the arts and, say, poetry in particular. Because although I can see there are there are benefits, there are insights obviously to be gained from all these different ways of looking at things and looking at uh, the place of literature, the place of art within society as a whole. Uh, I, th I think there are some great dangers as well. I mean, I remember reading uh, Richard Hoggart's, you know, classic book, The Uses of Literacy, many, many years ago. I found it really fascinating, really fascinating, partly because I, I could understand a lot of it in terms of my own experience. And it, certainly in terms of politics, uh, as we were talking earlier on, during the 1980s and into the 1990s, uh, those of us living in this country uh, were experiencing politics right in your face, as it were, in terms of... Uh, Thatcherite uh, policies and so forth and for many of us it would have been wrong not to have dealt with that in some way or another so there were quite a lot of us who were writing about the effects of these social, uh, social and e economic policies on everyday, on everyday life the, the thing was though not to turn it into propaganda which is the, one of the easiest things and of course as we see propaganda is, 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 is a kind of uh, propaganda is a kind of vicious sentimentality I think you know it's flat it's some, it has no dimensions to it it doesn't acknowledge complexity ambiguity and in fact it doesn't recognise humanity okay, so this is a danger if, if you want to tackle social and political problems as a writer um, so one of the other aspects of interpretations of the place of the arts in society is that although each one of them can bring something useful, I think, to your understanding of, of what's actually happening, of how you operate and how it works with other people, how it works in terms of social structure, etc. All of those theories, every theory is partial. I think that's the point. Every theory is partial in that it will have some truth to it, but it is not comprehensive. And the problem is, of course, that most theorists love to develop a comprehensive theory. And we get people like Zizek recently, you know, going on about what we need is a total theory of everything. Which I find quite strange, because as a Marxist, he already has a theory of everything. <laughs> um, but I would say to him, no, we bloody well don't want a theory of everything. 
which the, the world has suffered from people having theories of everything. You know, you could find people who would be able to explain why, for instance, I'm wearing black socks today, because it has some kind of socio-political, economic, religious, gender, identity-based reason. <laughs> um, it, may, it may have that kind of reason, but it's actually irrelevant. Um, I try to avoid getting involved in arguments with my, my colleagues, but uh, as you can see, it's, uh, it's one of these things that really kind of aggravates me. But there is a serious point to it because uh, any kind of theory that is applied automatically, because it is a theory, has an ideological background to it. It's, you, can't, you cannot not uh, apply an ideology if you're applying a theory. Now, the problem is that when you apply that to something like literature, what happens is that it, it takes say, the poem and it only applies its own criteria to it. It removes the poem from its original ground, as it were. Uh, it, so the poem is not dealt with on its own terms as written by the poet. It's dealt with on somebody else's terms. And it has obviously then a different meaning different resonances and I think what can happen is the poem then can be emptied out in a way, it can be eviscerated because these ideological um, approaches are, are, are used on it it becomes something else so you, get this, you sometimes get the sense uh, when you're reading uh, criticisms or ideas about various things that it's almost as if, as if this is just material for the theorist and that there's nothing real there in the first place and it has a meaning of its own and, you can, and they can use all kinds of arguments they can say well it's just language well of course it's language you know, language is a social construct blah 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 yes but language is the primary thing about being human and that's the importance of it you know. no poet is going to deny that language is not social I mean if we, if we didn't want to communicate we wouldn't use language in that sort of way we, we'd do something else so I think there are dangers in, inherent in this process and again just leaping off the tangent which is provided by Mario there is that this, this idea that the political system for instance can appropriate ideas from social sciences but also appropriate semi-digested ideas from science which is becoming more and more common, I think. You find politicians, I mean, pardon me when I spit, because I hate um, Politicians more and more are coming out with ideas about, oh, um, this would be a good way of controlling people, because science scientists have found out that, for instance, if you, if you give people a carrot, they react better than if you give them a stick. That's, it's, it's that kind of level. Um, so I think there are very, very great dangers that something like the arts can be subsumed into a political and ideological purpose and it's something I've come to you know, really resent more and more over the years and I think again it has to be about the primacy of the individual because the, the individual is the human the human is the, is the basis of it and that's why art, that's why literature is important because it is right down to you it's to do with me to do with us as living human beings who are more complex more complex and, and much richer and more imaginative and wonderful and frightening 
than anything that can be produced by uh, propaganda or simply you know, analysing people in, from a particular standpoint. So we, we have the idea of what is it for, in a sense. Now, at one stage I, would have th I could say, well, poetry and literature has some kind of duty or responsibility, perhaps, to bear witness, because it, it makes nothing happen, and we do know that, it has no effect. It doesn't change large numbers of people, it might change the occasional individual, but it has no social, political effect. And yet, we find that it has a place within the, the social and political machine, as it were. So we end up with, at one end, fairly benign uh, idea of the Arts Council and providing public funding to artists, which I'm all in favour for if I can get some of it, obviously. Um, but then you also have this uh, idea of, well, how do we incorporate the arts into our apparatus? You know, how do we carry on uh, justifying the funding of it, for instance, or the use of it? Well, they, they come out with the usual things of urban and social regeneration. You know. well, well, you know, that's, that's that. does it work? I don't really know. Um, artist therapy. Now, I'm not particularly interested in artist therapy. I know that it can be very beneficial to lots of people, so that's fine. And there are a lot of poets and writers who are very happy to work in situations such as um, prisons, etc. They get a great deal out of it. That's fine, but I don't see that as the real, I was going to say purpose, but I've got to contradict myself, of course. Do I contradict myself? <laughs> I contain multitudes. Um, so you find that the kind of manipulation of, of art for political and social agendas, which I think is something we need to be very careful because if, if you're given money by the government there's always something else going on you know. um, that's also linked to this other idea, an older idea which is that uh, they do this because art is good for you now I, I don't believe that anymore I don't think art is good for you necessarily it, it might be but it doesn't have to be, I think um, I think art, literature, poetry, is actually amoral in a, in a very moral sense, if you see what I mean, in that it's, it is best when it's not really wagging the finger, and it's not trying to improve you. No. Because it's trying to improve you in some ways, it's a kind of sentimentality, it's a kind of propaganda, I think. That's different from being witness to something, to sort of saying, look, and then you make up your own mind. You experience this, you make up your own mind. Um, so I, I've got to a stage where I think that art is literature, poetry, A is useless. Okay, but it's useless in the most positive way possible. Uh, particularly poetry, as we, we all know this, because there's no money in poetry. So if there's any budding poets out there, don't think about it in terms of money, don't think about it in terms of fame or anything like that. It has no kind of commodity value. It has no social value, really. It has no financial value. That's, that's the great reason for it to be really useful, because it's just human. You know, that's, that's what the position I've come to, to, uh, to take. 
is precisely that uselessness because it's human that makes it valuable and there's a quote from the not particularly fashionable Romanian philosopher Emil Choram who unfortunately at one stage was a fascist before the Second World War but I, I think he gave it up after that um, <laughs> um, he lived in Paris most of his life and he lived in hotels which is quite an interesting character but he, he, he wrote some very, very interesting kind of philosophy and if I can find the quote uh, he, he, he for instance thought the same kind of thing that literature was of no use and had no moral value um, and he said that, um, that like life um, it has the excuse of not of not proving anything and he liked the idea of poets being uh, a disguised disease and that when he got to know a poet and their works it, sort of, it seemed to enter his bloodstream and change them I quite like that metaphor actually so I quite like the idea of art that's bad for you as well as that possibly is good for you the main thing is that it's not used uh, by the state, by the apparatus by the political uh, setup or even the, the social and educational setup as it were and there's various sort of ramifications to that, but uh, I want to finish because I know I'll carry on talking forever if you can stop me. Um, <laughs> there's, I'll, I'll read you one of my poems. It's quite an old, old poem, but what this does, I think, is show that collision between, say, the, the true spirit of curiosity in in the way that it's manifested in science as a science as a method as a means. Uh, not as an ideology um, on the one hand which is vital, which is necessary which we all benefit from um, which I welcome but on the other the ideological which can take the form of religious belief you know, all ideologies all religions etc in the end tend to be as far as I'm concerned uh, fairly totalitarian I know there are exceptions to that but, uh, we can argue about it and, and there's this kind of collision sometimes bet between the two um, so I, I, I will end with this but I'll just check to make sure I haven't missed out something vitally important and something which will change your world uh, no, I, don't th I don't think I've got anything like that um, yes. um, just off the bat I was thinking about economics how can economics be a science science in terms of is knowledge but not science in the way that, say, biology, chemistry, physics, uh, astrophysics, etc. It's a science, surely. It's a bit like weather forecasting, isn't it? But there are certain precise things that you can know, but the whole picture is still a bit vague, really, isn't it? You know? And then you still get chaos. And uh, just before I read this, my total theory of everything, it's very simple, is that life is chaos and boredom ending with death. <laughs> um, but um, I'll, I'll just finish with the, the, this, this poem because I was going to recite some poetry I suppose um, Descartes and the dogs of philosophy he nailed a dog alive to a door 
slit the skin, the better to observe the circulation of blood, the shiny straps of its musculature. Proving also thus the existence of God, which he'd argue any way he could. The dog yelped and howled till its heart fluttered finally to a stillness. He withdrew his bloody hands, washed them, sat down to write with a stink of flesh still in his nostrils. In all these matters, he said, you must start with a clean slate. <laughs> Many thanks, Michael Blackburn. I must recall the brief uh, frustration at um, having been belatedly told or asked if I'd like to chose trying to purchase the volumes of both the speakers. I knew Marrow's work very well, but uh, I'm finding that Amazon A wouldn't let me, and B, they wouldn't even let me get the seat previews. So my apologies to both for not actually being well versed in your own verse, um, and uh, basically picking up several points that I think Michael's made extremely well, particularly about the bad morality. Uh, entailed on Maoist poetry, one might say that Mao's point about Mao and Stalin mm. has been well made by, again, Michael's point about effectively this, this wonderful, the morality of amorality, the morality of language, one thinks of slogans, half-digested truths, and much else. And that leads me to Richard, because Richard uh, has effectively <coughs> espoused this very point in his quotations of Shaw's genteel euthanasia and genocide of policy yeah. made by George Bernard Shaw in a preface to several of his own poems in the Departure Land, which yeah. he called Extermination Land. And Richard Tyrone Jones has actually addressed this in, in the Germline volume, which I was perusing rapidly, because I, again, I had managed to purchase this. And I found that a very useful way into, into discussing what no doubt you're going to give us a paper on. But uh, it, this is something we need to run with. So thank you very much, Richard. And again, I commend having read both, skimmed through both of these now, uh, the volumes to the readers. I, th I think we will be signing them in the foyer afterwards. Good. So um, do all I think you also know. Yeah. Um, I hope so, yes. Um, uh, yeah, we will be selling stories as well as telling them. So, uh, uh, yeah. Um, I basically was, was brought in to uh, talk about this when it was uh, started off just being about the sciences and uh, the remit of this talk has been expanded uh, to include the social sciences. Indeed. Oh, right. Um, and of course, that's anthropology, archaeology, comparative musicology, uh, communication studies, cultural studies, demography, economics, history, human geography, international development, international relations, uh, linguistics, media studies, philology, political science, psychology, and social work. Um, and uh, I'm afraid I won't be reading out poems on all of those mm -hmm. themes tonight. We don't have uh, the time. And uh, besides, my knowledge of comparative musicology is a little bit shaky. I, I looked through my old GCSE notes, but uh, uh, yeah, I, I come come to uh, the science and social sciences as having done uh, a history degree and not having uh, a background in the actual sciences. Um, I, I do read lots of um, popular science books by uh, Richard Dawkins. A bit of Dawkins and Hawkins, um, and uh, so basically, I'm, I'm kind of in the position of being this Victorian amateur who does a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and will go out and chip at some limestone and in the morning and find a feather and think, oh, this must belong to an angel uh, who was <laughs> drowned in the flood, and then have his lunch and come back out and. Um, gas, uh, sorry, suffocate a pigeon uh, in a bell jar and they go, hmm, this proves that phlogiston does exist. Um, so if I do make any um, mistakes uh, in, the, in the science, uh, then please do pick me up on it. Um, I think I, I'm going to start off by talking about the impact of poetry on society 
um, and, 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 and social sciences. Are, when, you, when you quoted Auden, Michael, I think was right. Poetry does make nothing happen, uh, but it does make nothing happen uh, very cost effectively. It's a very cheap way of uh, making sometimes when if you compare it to uh, reform. Uh, programs, uh, public-private finance initiatives, and uh, reconstructive wars. Um, I can't actually <laughs> think that um, of a single example when poetry has actually stopped a bad thing from happening or initiated a, a social policy. Um, hopefully, you'll be able to correct me um, on this. Um, in the run-up to the Iraq War, Todd Swift started a campaign and did a pamphlet from poets around the world called "A Hundred Poets Against the War." And funnily enough, the war won. Guernica um, <laughs> didn't stop the, the Spanish Civil War. Um, Wilfred Owen didn't end mechanised slaughter. And uh, poetry probably won't ameliorate uh, climate change. Certainly not when you know I printed a thousand of these. But um, uh, I think I think it, it, it's other other um, arts forms have more impact. I mean, films can raise awareness. Cathy um, Come Home initiated the founding of Shelter, although obviously the homelessness still exists. Um, and uh, science, I think, best argues the case uh, for science uh, against um, uh, creationism and uh, for the, for the, the beauty um, that we see in the universe in the humanistic realm. I think as, as in terms of Darwin's children, Richard Dawkins uh, will sell a lot more copies than Ruth Padell with her poetic uh, life of, of Darwin, although they're both, both fantastic writers. Um, uh, the film of The Road will sell more copies and make people think more about um, the, and any impending uh, apocalypse uh, than uh, the book will. Um, and uh, I think if we look at um, moving out of poetry, the, the Carbon Diaries um, by Saki Lloyd, which is you know teenagers' book, which is um, opening people's eyes to how we're all going to have to ration our carbon and so on, what's actually going to happen in the near future. Um, a lot of the um, press on that has focused not on the book and the issues itself, but um, on the author's Rags to Riches story and the fact that um, the film was going to be filmed by sexy Johnny Depp. But um, I think that science then is, 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 is better as, as a subject for poetry, um, but it doesn't really work in and of itself. I think if you were to write about relativity theory in its own terms, but put it in rhyming uh, pentameter, then um, it would probably be awful. Um, I think you have to write about science's impact on people. Um, one of my favourite um, poems of Mario's um, is uh, God Boys from um, Heavy, I might be pronouncing that wrong, from, uh, from uh, Heavy Water. Um, this is a, a, a gay couple um, who've been affected by radiation and uh, it's only as, as they're dying that people begin to accept them and let them uh, walk down the road holding hands. Um, and uh, the, the homophobia of, of Russia, and uh, they kind of end up looking like twins <coughs> as they're losing their hair. And it's a very beautiful, touching poem that explores, obviously, the, the failure of, of uh, scientific advances on its impact um, on people, and also the Chernobyl wedding, where all the all the presents. It's, it's a, basically a parody of the fertility rites of, of the wedding, and all the presents are scooped into black plastic bags. Um, and uh, so I think. It, Poetry needs to be humanised if it's going to um, if it's going to use science. I want to um, read a couple of Lavinia Greenwald poems as examples um, quickly. Um, and 
This one's the recital of lost cities, and it's about climate change. And Lavinia Greenlaw is a much better poet than than me, uh, but um, I, I still still going to still feel that I can. You have to cr criticise the recital of lost cities. It started with the polar ice caps, a slight increase in temperature, and the quiets were shattered. The Australian Antarctic wandered all over the Norwegian dependency as mountainous fragments lurched free with a groan like ship's mahogany. And then there was the continental shift. Everywhere you went, America was coming closer. Hot weather brought plague and revolution. Nations disappeared or renamed themselves as borders moved in, out, in, out, with tidal persistence and threat. Cartographers dealt in picture postcards. The printing plates for the last atlas were archived unused. Their irrelevant contours gathered dust, locked in a vault to save the public from the past and the danger of wrong directions. The sea rose by inches, unraveled the coastline, eased across the lowlands and licked at the hills where people gathered to remember names. Calcutta, Tokyo, San Francisco, Venice, Amsterdam, Baku, Alexandria, Santo Domingo, dot, dot, dot. Now, I think that's, that is one example of a poem that is trying to change people's behaviour. Um, but I think it, 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 it lacks the, the human element. It, um, it, it's, it's, there's some uh, great, we were, as we were just discussing before, some of the, uh, with modern, modern poetry, there, there are some great images, but you kind of know where it's going. And then, uh, it, uh, I mean, and there's just bits with extrapolation. It started with polar ice caps. Well, we, well, we know about that. And uh, uh, hot weather brought plague and revolution. Well, we, again, we, we know that that's going to happen. So uh, we don't really need to be uh, told that. Um, but I want to contrast that with um, another poem by Lavinia Greenlaw, who, by the way, was um, poet, poet in residence at the Science Museum. So uh, obviously knows of what, of what she speaks. Uh, and this is called The Innocence of Radium. And I think this, um, I think this uh, for me anyway, I feel free to disagree, works uh, much better. With a head full of Swiss clockmakers, she took a job at a New Jersey factory painting luminous numbers, copying the style believed to be found in the candlelit back rooms of snowbound alpine villages. Holding each clock face to the light, she would catch a glimpse of the chemist as he measured and checked. He was old enough, had a kind face, and a foreign name she never dared to pronounce. Chocky. For a joke, she painted her teeth and nails, jumped out on the other girls walking home. In bed that night, she laughed out loud and stroked herself with ten green fingertips. Unable to sleep, the chemist traced each number on the face he had stolen from the factory floor. He liked the curve of her eights, the way she raised the brush to her lips, and, with the delicate purse of her mouth, smoothed the bristle to a perfect tip. Over the years, he watched her grow dull. The doctors gave up, removed half her jaw, and blamed syphilis when her thigh bone snapped as she struggled up a flight of steps. Diagnosing infidelity, the chemist pronounced the innocence of radium, a kind of radiance that could not be held by the body of a woman only caught between her teeth. He was proud of his paint and made public speeches on how it could be used by artists to convey the quality of moonlight. Sochoki displayed these shining landscapes on his walls, his face sustained alone in a room 
full of warm skies that broke up the dark and drained his blood of its colour. His dangerous bones could not keep their secrets. Laid out for x-ray, before a single button was pressed, they exposed the plate and pictured themselves as a ghost, not a skeleton, a photograph he was unable to stop being developed and fixed. So there we are, we've got um, a love story in there, we've got, um, uh, again, the, 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 uh, the villain in the piece, uh, uh, apart from jealousy, is uh, radium, and uh, that wonderful image of the, the x-ray um, coming in, forming itself. Um, I think, and it's not, it's not preachy, I mean, again, it, it says something that we know, we know that uh, radiation is dangerous, and, that, uh, and it, 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 it uh, promises that, um, I think for us now, that there are many other chemicals that we'll find out that we think are innocent, and uh, then turn out to be reducing our fertility and so on, uh, with all the plastics that we use, etc. But um, I think it's less preachy than the first one. Um, and I think that's how you have to write about science, um, if, well, uh, how it's best to write about science if you're a poet, is uh, to, to make sure that you keep the human element in there. There's, um, I, I do lots of workshops, um, and uh, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you're trying to get people to do to write about science, uh, it's obviously difficult because first you have to explain the various ideas. I did one on uh, on, di on disease and getting people to write about uh, characters and then give give them diseases and see how they cope with them as a as a means of working on character development, which is very very sadistic to people's characters. Um, but um, obviously you, you have to <laughs> first of all explain, uh, give them a, a readout explaining Huntington's career or other genetic uh, diseases like um, Tay-Sachs or sickle cell anemia. Um, and then, once the story's actually been written, then you have to de-jargonise it. You have to take a lot of the medicine out again uh, so that um, the reader or the person that's hearing your poem at a reading will actually be able to understand it. Um, you leave that in your blind field, the, the, the rest of the stuff that's informed the poem, but you don't necessarily put in. Um, I guess um, I want to just pick up on the, the talk, talking about poetry um, as economics um, and its social value. Um, I mean, it, it, we say it's Im impossible to measure, and yet we, we, have to, we try and do it anyway. Certainly the Arts Council does. Um, you have to, I've, I've done a lot of Arts Council applications, and uh, you really do have to tick the boxes and, and say, well, it's going to cost this much. Uh, and it's going to have these benefits, uh, it's going to have these uh, social benefits. You can't really do a massive calculation if you're doing a, a prison workshop, say, and think, well, how, what's the, uh, how many people, how many crimes is this, going to, this poem going to prevent, and uh, what's the net economic worth of all that? Um, two and a half. Is that two and a half crimes? Well, there we are. Yes. I think, and then just to see which, which poem pre prevents most crimes, yeah. and then if comes up, oh, on, on average, that will, uh, if will prevent an arson and a burglary, and so, well, that's the one we'll use in the workshops. Um, I would love to, um, as I'm reading poems right now, I'd love to put colonies <laughs> on your heads and measure your heart rates and um, see which poems accelerate um, leaving dopamine and, uh, and, and serotonin levels uh, in your brain and, and, and chart the neural activity and then maybe we could um, have a running, you know, uh, calculate the worth of that in money and then have it projected up on the screen uh, so that we know just how effective this um, uh, reading is. But um, Anyway, um, my subject is basically, uh, I guess if it's only social science, it's demographics. Um, I love writing about um, extermination and um, 
Uh, this, uh, uh, if I can finish with two poems from, from my book. Uh, this one is um, Unborn Children, and it's about uh, the fact that uh, we've got like a birth rate of 1.8 children, I think it is, um, at the moment, uh, uh, per uh, family, which is not enough to um, uh, for us to renew ourselves um, in, in the Western world. Um, so I thought, well, obviously, practice what I preach, I'll turn this into a personification poem, so here it is. Those unborn children are making a racket again, banging their hands on the luxury biscuit tin, chanting, we would have saved your relationship, we would have saved your relationship, even though we're still together. It must be them who've been stealing all the chocolates, they must be the reason I feel too tired to do it, they must have been behind that tumour that ate my prostate jumping up and down in the unconverted attic, banging all their little heads against its walls of rubber, ringa-ringa-rosing round that old appended anchor, playing mummies and daddies themselves in ever-increasing panic. I had the supple wrists of a juggler, but now they're gone. You kept your figure another decade, never passed it on. We can't discern their number, though I suspect one has one leg. Those unborn children are making a racket again. We'll have to put them up for adoption by the couple that never even asked each other out. That's quite um, <laughs> quite dark, isn't it? Really, if I was, um, this could be found in the humour section. I guess the the other side of that for the the last poem is. Um, as, as you were saying, um, Darwinism obviously led to uh, social Darwinism and uh, basically people extrapolating from theories into um, into the theory of evolution into economics uh, and Adam Smith and, and, and Malthus as well um, uh, without any proof. That, I mean, I don't really don't know how you can. How you can obviously it was impossible to just justify eugenics. Um, it's it could be possible to justify um, and well it is on a on a, on a low level um, uh, possible to justify eugenics now that we do have a knowledge of genetics and how it works um, pe and people do and obviously people abort uh, fetuses if they have Downs and so on. And you know, you wonder whether Darwin would have done so himself with his last child, who had Down syndrome and died early. Um, but yes, it was on the right and the left. Um, eugenics was um, a, really affected the social sciences, and everyone agreed with it. Which is, um, as George Bernard Shaw said, extermination must be put on a scientific basis if it is ever to be carried out humanely and apologetically as well as thoroughly. So either, um, it's the idea of, that you can have an ap apologetic cull of the human race. Oh, sorry, old boy. But um, okay. Uh, but I, I, I thought it would be too easy, uh, as I said, to to have a pop at uh, at uh, Galton uh, et al. Uh, because that uh, that argument's been won. So I thought I'd, I thought I'd kind of defend the idea of eugenics. Uh, but obviously, it's um, uh, it's the 21st century, so this is um, a, a eugenic call uh, on an equal opportunities basis, uh, with no racial element whatsoever. It's kind of a PC call. Um, it's called uh, into the cattle trucks. People who stop abruptly in the middle of the street. Girls whose labels stick up at the back. Old men who would not say their prayers. Fussy eaters allergic to rat. 
They who tried to fool us by wearing contact lenses. People who used to queue for ATMs across the pavement. Women with double buggies. Men with cystitis. Demutes who refused to belt up their trousers. Not Ray Mears. Everybody now. We were running out of food. We were running out of water. But everything we did, we did that you might live, my daughter. Those whose moles spelt words in Arabic. Those who insisted on impractical clothes. Those whose surnames began with an X. It wasn't planned on a racist basis, but that was the letter the Ouija board chose. They who defied us by helping those in hiding. They who lacked the moral fibre to help those in hiding. Those in hiding. <laughs> Except the ones we couldn't find, obviously. We gave them an amnesty. Yo, DJ, bring that beat back. It was through their loss that your future was won. So no pressure, but make the most of it, son. The epileptic, the diabetic, the junkies and the anorexic. But I let one go every ten days. Those who let one go every ten days. The proud, the meek, the old, the weak, the homeless, the menopausal. The ones who just got in the way of reprisals. Those with less than 21 teeth. Oh, oh, a little louder. You're probably wondering, my children, what we're telling you all this now for. It's so you won't resist when our ticket as it must do, drops through our door. Cheers. Thank you very much, Richard, for that puff for Martin Amos's uh, booth um, <laughs> yeah. euthanasia. Yeah. But uh, many thanks. Uh, there could be one <coughs> issue taken. Uh, poetry might not make anything happen. Of course, we do know that Alba's opera, The Blind Girl, did in 1830 it started off the Belgian Revolution so perhaps we should be turning our words to librettos um, Can I just pick up on poetry making nothing happen because I think we often misquote it um, yes of course poetry makes nothing happen the famous Alden quote but if you read on a few lines he talks about poetry's ability to persuade yes. so there's other ways of reading that line poetry makes nothing happen the emphasis wasn't on makes in other words poetry persuades also, there's a, a metaphysical message. Poetry makes nothing happen. Makes an, a very active agency of nothing. Enlivens nothing. How else are you going to achieve a nothing that's productive, except through something like poetry or art? So there's a, other ways of reading that line. Mm -hmm. I agree. It continues in the long valley of its yes. making. I wondered, looking at that, thinking of that line of picking up with that and I thought well, it makes perception happen. And the whole point is that we are altered by our perception, and that's something that science has been teaching you ever since Heisenberg, that our perceptual element is actually the most important of all. And whatever happens, it's a numinous, it's possibly not quantifiable, it certainly doesn't make 2.5 crimes go down from the Arts Council's point of view. However, it makes our way of looking at the universe a different thing. And if this happens long enough, the universe tends to shift with us. It's something that which it can't be quantified. Well, that doesn't make it any less valuable. In fact, it's probably its validity is born in the very uncertainty uh, and the very uh, exploratory nature of language, which in a sense analyzes it at the deepest with the most recent developments in science and indeed in social sciences, which are obviously destabilized by, have been considered enriched by all the deconstructions of the past 30 years and the use of the French language to address that, which is effectively how we've got it in the first place. But isn't that, isn't that the hope for something like poetry? I take your point, Richard, about poetry not making anything happen. We know to a large extent that's true, but we have the butterfly effect. Yeah. And sometimes we look at quantitative impact 
rather than qualitatively. I mean, a crystal grows from an atom, or two or three atoms clump together, and you can get a crystal the size of Ayers Rock uh, from that with time. So there are other modalities of growth and change which aren't to do with quantity, yeah, but having a form yeah. that can then be imitated or worked on or expanded. It's, it's one of these strange... It, it, perhaps it is our way of looking at it, that you, if you act, then there has to be some kind of discernible or measurable effect, mm-hmm. which I, I think is not the way that we should be looking at it. I think that's the real problem, because if you look at from a different angle, that, is there any society ever, anywhere, uh, of any number of people that didn't produce some form of art? Mm-hmm. You know, that, whether it was drawings, carvings, sculptures, paintings, music, dance... If there had been, we wouldn't know. We wouldn't know that. So, oh my God, it's actually populated with people that didn't have art. <laughs> but I mean, you know, we wouldn't know about it. But, but there's something about it which is deeply and profoundly human, mm-hmm. which obviously means it's important. But it, it's it's how we how we decide how it's important. I think which is the, the problem. What do we need? But what we're, I wrote down at the Times editorial from way back. No one is ever better for writing good poetry. But more importantly, I wonder who the senator was, no one is ever better for reading it. Or worse. Possibly. Oh, oh, sorry. Sorry. Mm-hmm. I saw a film with Unfortunately, Tim McGrady, uh, as an Obama in 1996, also you quoted that very poem as he died. But it's extraordinary how that poem, Invictus, is used by a white racist supremacist on one side and Martin Mandela on the other. Uh, but it's absolutely true. Uh, you're looking. You're yeah, yes, I mean, couldn't the idea of poetry making nothing happen be um, a really important way of bypassing the censors? Um, because, and, you know, and, and all art for that matter, because if, if art and poetry is seen to be actively attempting to make something happen, therefore all kinds of rules and constrictions need to come around that. Yes. And so to set to, to keep art as something which just is, um, leaves it free to be what it needs to be at whatever point in time it happens. Um, yes. And so it feels like art needs to be protected by that, that kind of um, idea. Oh yes, yes. Can you just respond to this? This is a lady. Yeah. May not be there. Uh, major points. You're going to. Uh, I was going to say there are several things about a poetry not making it happen. But um, sorry, just to answer Sharon's point. Oh, I'm going to definitely do that. And there's a, there's a gentleman over there who also uh, raised his hand too. So uh, would you like to make your point after this lady here? Um, or would you before you worked? Okay. I wondered where it led on because one we'll was starting to the other. I think we need to start a queue, so I think you're going to make your point before. Can Sorry. I comment on that? Though? Please do. Yeah. Um, one, one of the things, one of the great things science has brought to consciousness is the idea that there's no such thing as nothing. 
A vacuum is not a vacuum. There's quantum energy mm. beneath that. In fact, the Big Bang might be nothingness suddenly engendering itself mm. in, in a different form. So the whole notion of there being a nothing is, is a very difficult metaphysical problem for science. Um, and in fact, I think one that probably will never be solved. And what better way of approaching something like that but through art? Precisely the reason you said. I think George's point also was about the creativeness of that nothingness. Even if there was a vacuum, if it wasn't a vacuum, the actual vacuum itself is, you feel it absolutely important. It's crucial to have that space evacuated, isn't it? So that in fact you can invest that with what you wish. Uh, even if you're saying we're bringing on a set of a cultural baggage with us to do it, whatever it is, it's your cultural baggage, and that's what you're going to invest that space in without it actually being contaminated in the good or bad sense, as Marion would have mentioned earlier. Why that? So uh, that's also important. Can I just, just, just jump in there as well? This is great, wonderful pool. Is uh, yes, I, I mean I agree with you on that. Something I, I think I forgot to, to, to mention. Um, was A, that uh, the concept of nothingness is a great metaphysical thing. I can't comprehend most of this kind of stuff. You know, it's just uh, I find it really difficult to get my head around it. And anything that involves measurement or any anything more complicated in scientific terms is just like you know, it just completely goes out of my mind. Uh, but w one of the things I wanted to say, which comes back to what I think what you were saying is that if uh, all cultures have art of some form, it comes from something that's profoundly human. But I was going to quote that line from Yeats's poem, Now Irish Airman Foresees His Death, which is uh, it's a poem which keeps going round in my head, because I just love it so much, because it's obviously not about an Irish Airman foreseeing his death, because it's a poem. <coughs> and it's just that line, lonely impulse of delight drove to this tumult in the clouds. And I think that's I think that's probably what all of us that's what gets all of us writing, isn't it? It's, it's a lonely impulse of delight. It's just something which gives you profound pleasure, isn't it? To be able to write something, to create something, is one of the most profoundly satisfying things in, in life. Just as it is profoundly satisfying, I think, in many ways, to read something which it might aggravate you, it might get you going, but there is some very special kind of pleasure out of it, which, which I maybe, maybe I'm contradicting myself. No, no I'm going to, thank you very much. I'm going to bring in two people and a third over there. Uh, first, I mean, I think it's interesting how uh, one says that it, uh, was it a spring in fact before we lost the point altogether about Asian cultures always having things like poetry in them, and one feels one, they didn't have things like life insurance. And then you reflect, and, and they got on very well, as Francis Thompson reminds us, without soap, uh, for 2,000 years without poetry. But actually, life insurance was particularly developed by uh, Ives, the composer Charles Ives, the innovative modernist American composer, born in 1874, and five years after him was born Wallace Stevens, the other person who, uh, as a very famous poet, also inaugurated life insurance. So I don't know what poetry does, but it does it for some of the others. Now. If I make the judgment up there, thank you. Yes, I uh, as, as author of oh, he, he was first, actually. I'm sorry. Oh, Apologies, sir. Uh, uh, as author of a book called The Romantic Economist, I hugely enjoyed Mario Petrucci's uh, comments about the role of poetry in rebooting consciousness and, and economics. Because science is riddled with metaphor and has to be riddled with metaphor. And uh, Deirdre Costi once said the problem about economists is they are poets, but they don't know it. And if you think about economics, riddled with mechanical metaphors. They need to deconstruct those metaphors and experiment with, with new ones. And your point about negative capability, I think, is hugely important. And, and it's something I've been thinking about a lot about how 
things that perhaps poets do need to help a bit more with is not necessarily just educating economists and civil servants and so on, but it's actually educating all of us again. We've all become too enamored of thinking that we need certainty. It's actually the public, it's actually the voters who don't allow politicians or civil servants to say, you don't know, we're uncertain. <coughs> so, so I think maybe there's another role yes, of poetry there, actually reminding all of us that uncertainty and ambiguity is a fact in, in impact, environmental impact assessments I worked with when I taught ecology at Middlesex University, um, there was this huge attempt in the 80s, early 90s to, bring, to do two things, to bring cost-benefit analysis to ecology and try and quantify a landscape. And one of those methods was willingness to pay. So they'd ask people how much they'd pay uh, to keep that landscape in place. And that was a way of valuing it. Of course it isn't. What they ended up doing with impact assessments and strategic impact assessments was to list all the intangibles and say, well, these are the things we're going to lose. We can't value them. They're intangible. There's a landscape. There's a species. There's a river. And then there was this kind of collective shrug. That's all we can do. Which ought to be where politics Yes. And, it, and it's interesting, when Darwinism was being discussed originally, in that great Victorian debate about whether or not Darwin was right, you had clerics, poets, novelists, uh, doctors, everyone seemed to pitch in. Yeah, don't we live now in a post-positivist culture whereby, yes, there's this passivity, as you were saying, but also at the same time there's this specialisation which we've now scaled out so much since the Renaissance that in fact people just feel disqualified from saying it, and in a sense, um, this is not your specialisation, shut up. Yes. So we live in that. I'm going to think of a lady who would be yeah, appreciated. Really so many things have happened, but whatever I was going to say is somewhere else. But uh, going back to the uh, nothing, I just want to say uh, the still point, the still point of that very profound human uh, perception, insight, knowing, or whatever, but that still point, it seems to me, is the nothing, which is so totally, absolutely effective. And I want to just to go to a couple of things Mario said about the radical, evolutionary, transformative nature of poetry. Um, and you had said about bearing witness, and then I want to say about how free is it, because it is so politically correct. Um, and you get up and you talk about, because I'm, I'm a poet and an artist, and you know, you get up and you talk about the extermination of rebellious women under Islam, and you're not allowed to say that. Nobody exactly hits you on the head, and you don't get shot at the door. But you understand that this is not sufficiently left-wing. This is not sufficiently um, within what you can criticize publicly. Um, and uh, as a feminist, I, I get pissed off. Uh, but, you know, I also, as a human being, I also feel that uh, the self-censorship is something that, uh, God, I mean, if artists and poets can't spout whether, whether they're saying something brilliant or idiotic, um, <coughs> then there is no freedom. And if poetry can't shovel out and create that force, where is our future? I think an interesting answer to that possibly would come from Eastern European poetry uh, and its use of trope and metaphor in its compressed form. And the sad and bizarre thing was, I'm a poet I quite like uh, when he's on the best novel, Christopher Reed, but he used Katharina Brack in 1985 where he was saying, well, please let us be compressed, repressed, and metaphoric and Eastern European. And he produced this persona poet, uh, kind of extended Bezoa, the, the Ferdinand Bezoa, the man with his heteronyms and his created poets. 
And I thought that it was curious that, in a way, the irony was there that we used <coughs> metaphors and tropes, or rather that several poets started doing this, because it seemed to be, ironically, in the world of repression, uh, we think of Gang in the 20s and 30s uh, in Russia before it was exterminated altogether, that in fact poetry flourished particularly um, before it was wholly exterminated. I don't think, and I think Manchester de Mandistan made the great point that Mandistan wasn't ennobled by the suffering he just destroyed in the end. Nevertheless, uh, this kind of work does generate a way of thinking that, yes, we're not allowed to say things explicitly, but things happen in a parallel way. So they're, they're, it's a very, very uneasy stand-up perhaps. That we're there's addressing. always going to be that struggle, no, isn't it? There, yes. There's going to be that struggle. Alan Ginsberg said, the only thing that can save the world is reclaiming the awareness of the world. And there's going to be people in the world who want to reclaim that awareness for themselves and for everyone they meet, and others who don't. And that's a historical <coughs> struggle that hasn't ended. It's every age, every culture, whether it's Muslim, Christianity, or whatever. There has been some form of that struggle. Has it's elements ongoing. of ongoing. Will never, has be, will has never be one, but always has to be. Fought. Always has to be fought yeah. by every generation, mm-hmm. including us. Yes, true. The gentleman has been patiently waiting at the back. Uh, thank you all very much. Um, I have a question about the medium actually speaking for it. Um, you can have your lonely poet sitting away in a garret somewhere writing his or her work. That's definitely true that we that the poetry has become 
as a gentleman up there said, this, this private chamber. And the Cavendish, as we all know, those who have seen it, has also become its little private atom chamber. Uh, there's a lady who's... Okay, just say, I think that we can, we can blame printing for that, really, because you can take a, a poetry book and then read it um, on your own, and then you think, oh, well, that's good. And you, uh, as we discussed yes. as an individual, your mind might be changed. But it's when, with theatre, with... Uh, I guess they, they were theatrical pieces um, in ancient times, poetical uh, presentations. They'd have someone with a lyre as well, and it would be part of the Olympics. It would be, you know, the, the, when you do something like it's more like slam poetry now. Only I would imagine it was a lot better. And, um, and, and so, it, and so, it's, it, it's public and it's visual, and and so I think that's, that's when poetry and in, in all of its forms of literature. That's when it has more of a, more of an impact. So, I, I mean, we've got to we've got to have more public trees. Forms of attention, this, isn't yeah. it? And we need to be able to concentrate in a way that we weren't before. So I mean, I'm, I'm, I, would, I think most poets would actually like that kind of situation. I mean, most of us would really like to be able to be spending all our lives reading our poetry, performing it in front of vast crowds, uh, <laughs> and, and selling books and talking Bring to people. To I mean, I, I can't. I don't actually know many poets who. Wouldn't want that. I mean, the problem is that it doesn't happen. And I think there's just some little by the by. I think a lot of poets um, are really kind of secret rock star wannabes. Right. Jeremy Reed, you know, um, and, and Simon Armitage, of course. You know, because uh, we all fancy the idea of uh, melding that old tradition of the, the poet and the liar, the music with the words. But the only way you can do it these days is you, you, you either yeah. get hold of a guitar yourself and prove how awful you are, is it? or you get, you get somebody to back you. So I, I, the, these things still persist, but they don't work. Yeah. I think the one, I mean, I have to say that I, I, I do poetry readings, but actually I find them the most intensely boring thing to ever I go to concerts, I don't <coughs> go to poetry readings, and I think this is replicated elsewhere. This is a dialogue that poetry has to have with itself. In other words, when mm. our poets basically set boring readers, they're not trained. They don't do what you know about there, the Athenian thing. They don't get public rhetoric, rhetorical training. They don't actually think how to communicate. And I find it very difficult to listen to poems of any decent complexity that are actually on the page presented to me. Is this because our own attention span is reduced, or is it because our own oral culture is complexified, or indeed our capacity to take rhetoric has disappeared? Uh, um, lady up here, yes, yeah. wanted to bring you. Um, I think that we were speaking about uh, censorship and that uh, poetry doesn't do anything. If you take the example of the Soviet Union, mm -hmm. and uh, there is a poet, uh, yes. a very good uh, Ukrainian poet, Lina Kostem, who was in prison for about 16 years, mm -hmm. as a prisoner of consciousness. And she used to write poems from uh, this uh, prison. I managed, I had the opportunity to translate her into Portuguese and then meet her there and speak to her. And she would write on blue rose, on the bits of blue rose or whatever. And uh, there was a series of poems that she wrote where, that she said they were letters to the world. And the other series of poems that she wrote after she emerged from the prison and uh, when Glasnost came to Moscow and then later to Ukraine was uh, based, um, uh, it was a trial, a Soviet trial that she mocks um, by using an old Ukrainian ballad, which in mm -hmm. Ukraine is Dumit. Dumit is very old type where the bard would sing with a lute type of thing and, uh, and have a narrative. And she uses that a very old Ukrainian ballad to refer to the way that the Soviets, uh, um, Stalinist period, for example, purged them. There was a whole resident, there was a whole um, elite of about 600 writers and poets and other intellectuals that were completely exterminated. 
And that is, that is uh, you know, and the state, of course, perceived her as a very dangerous thing. And she was put into prison. So poetry, of course, was doing something. And yeah. she was, uh, she was it was true. perceived, yeah. I think, I think that that kind of gives the, the lie a bit. I mean, to, to, you were saying before that uh, because there's, people think that poetry does nothing, you can get away um, with, with being political through the use of metaphor, if you think of Daniel Carnes in the, the 30s writing these surreal little stories that you know would later go on to influence Ivor Cutler, and, and, uh, um, and uh, but they're really a, a very dark, intense tales that get the, the turmoil and the paranoia of um, Stalinist Russia um, through. But the, but because they're surreal, or because he was writing children's stories, they're just children's stories, you know, and, and they're disguised as well as a, as, as, as a, as a ballad or. Or something. It, um, I mean, it does make things happen, but I think it, it's in our society right now. It doesn't. Um, perhaps we're not oppressed. You know, I don't really mean this, uh, but um, perhaps we're not oppressed enough. Uh, it's, that's absolutely true. I mean, well, I can say briefly, we, we, we're now in a period whereby there was a diminution of interest in Russian uh, in that kind of poetry once it became legal again. There's a gentleman who wants to make a point up there. My sense is perhaps to be a very quick one, but it's It's interesting to, to wonder, you know, consecutively, what, what in Putin's Russia, which will be after 2012, will have Putin back, mm -hmm. uh, what kind of poetry it will generate, or indeed if that culture has been lost, that curious 20 years of, uh, in a sense, freedom has in fact dissipated the way of communicating, and then what that tells us about nature, and then tells us basically about the South American and Russian and other poetry scenes that are obviously living, as you say, diminutively, and obviously need poetry far more than we think we do. Uh, I'm conscious now that we're within our last two minutes, so that um, I can only thank. If there's anyone who would like to make any final points, please, please, yes, yes. Yes, yes, you can raise your hand. <laughs> okay, um, I think it's been more about poetry than science. Hmm. Yes, yes, yes. And that's that's one thing. Another thing is uh, that uh, you you didn't talk uh, enough about where they really meet. Whether there are same creative processes operating behind scientific inspiration, poetic inspiration, um, so maybe next time. That's uh, true. I mean, uh, <laughs> close with the thought of Erasmus Darwin, the, the other great um, forebear of Ruth Fidel, yes. the grandfather of Ruth Darwin, and he felt there was no problem. There was a science and poetry meeting place, and we saw I lost that, and it's time to find it again. And uh, my main thanks to my Tucci to Richard Jones and to Michael Blackburn for a very stimulating discussion. I'm sorry that we only moved it perhaps a third of the way forward, but we do hope to meet in the middle sometime. And thank you very much indeed. You've been a wonderful, stimulating audience. Thank you.